Well, again, good morning, and uh, special welcome to anybody who's visiting for the first time. I appreciate something that Jake said. I appreciate a lot that Jake said, but uh, one, one particular thing was he just mentioned that you may be very new to church. This may be very unusual for you to be in a place like this, so a special welcome to you if that's the case. You've come on an unusual Sunday in some ways. Uh, we've been studying a book of the New Testament for about a year and a half, and this is we're ending that series this morning. And a giant uh, celebration rose from the congregation at that point. But now we are—we're wrapping up the book of Romans this morning. We're in uh, chapter 16, and the last part. And if you don't have a Bible, you can just follow there in the in the bulletin. Uh, several years ago, I started something that I've, I've done every year since, and that is. As we go from spring to summer, I've preached on a doxology. You know, and a doxology, that's just the biblical term for when a writer or a figure says, to God be the glory. You know, may, may God receive all the glory. And it just so happens that Romans ends with one of those, so I get to kind of keep to my pattern and wrap this book up, sort of kill two birds with one stone. Uh, just for context, I'm going to read the last 10 or 11 verses, but really just preach on the doxology at the end. How do you end a masterpiece? Romans is a masterpiece. And, and like I've said all through this series, it's not to put one book of the Bible above the other books, but it's just to say God has really used this book in a singular way in individuals' lives and in church history. Lots of aha moments have come from the book of Romans. Uh, how do you end a masterpiece? And it's very fitting that the way you end it is with worship. So I want to ask you to turn your attention to Romans 16, again, I'm going to begin in verse 17, but I'll really focus as far as preaching on verses 25 to 27. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius. And Jason and Sosipater, my kinsman, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, we want to say with the psalmist that unless the Lord builds the house then those who labor, labor in vain. And that's all our houses. It's the house of our own individual lives. It's the house of family. It's the house of the church. 
it's even the house of a worship service. And we can try to put things together thoughtfully, and we can try to be here and listen and be engaged. But really, unless you build the house, then we who labor, labor in vain. So would you enable us to hear you? And would you open up our hearts and our ears and our eyes and our minds? And would you speak to us? And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. There's a, a book that just came out within the last, I think within the last month or so, and um, articles about this book and book reviews kind of made the rounds on the internet the last week or two. It's a book by uh, a woman named Wednesday Martin, and the name of the book is uh, Primates of Park Avenue. I don't know if you saw any, any piece about this in the last week or so. Wednesday Martin has lived in New York City for uh, something like 26 years, and it says she just has lived in every kind of neighborhood that you can live in in New York City, kind of the, the gamut. She, uh, her husband is in the financial industry. They have, they have some means. And her own training in school was in anthropology. So she finds uh, herself, her husband and her children, living on, on the Upper East Side, just surrounded by incredible affluence. And she starts looking at her neighborhood with the eyes of an anthropologist. And she realizes she is in one of the most... Um, remote tribes in New York City. And the tribe is Upper East Side Moms and Housewives. So here's a piece from the New York Post. The name of the piece is Inside the Bizarre Life of an Upper East Side Housewife. Uh, Her new book, Primates of Park Avenue, is a chronicle of her time as a wife and mother on the Upper East Side and the culture shock that ensued. Martin, who will only say that she's in her 40s, used, there, there's that age thing, Stephanie, used her background in anthropology to understand the behavior on display, the segregation of men and women, the abuse of alcohol and drugs, the wild displays of competition, the conspicuous consumption, and above all, the deification of children. Now, when, when she talks about, um, uh, how, how does he put it, uh, displays, um, oh, excuse me, conspicuous consumption, she talks about things like having a 50000 or 75000 or $100,000 handbag is plausible in this tribe. So, like, this is a different world. One of the things that struck me is that she's writing about people that just sort of, because of their means, they have, I mean, you might say, unlimited access to whatever resources you want. Does your child need therapy? You've got it. Do you need therapy? You've got it. Uh, Do you need special life coaches for you or your child? You've got it. Do you need money? You've got a lot of it. Do you need to be with a leech? You've got it. Do you need education? You can afford it for your children. You can fast track them. It said that like some of the children of her friends sent their children to a music school that accepts three-month-olds. Yikes. Just Just a different ecosystem. Well, she said she starts... Figuring out from an anthropologist's point of view, how do I make, how do I make my way into the tribe? How, how, do, how am I accepted by this tribe? And she starts to be. And so uh, women start to let their guard down with her. And here's what it says. As Martin assimilated, the other women began to share their own insecurities. Most of them were highly educated, yet had given up their careers to tend to their homes, their children, and their husbands. These women lived in fear of their husbands cheating or leaving them, and since they didn't have careers or money of their own, they had no leverage. Quote, there's this prevailing ethos of tense perfectionism and economic dependency. 
Martin says. The men have more power than they do. It is a very traditionally gender-scripted society. Now get this. Martin saw many in her circle self-medicate with pills, pot, wine, and vodka. Some mommies serve wine at 11 a.m. play dates. Ativan, Valium, Xanax are used for sleep aids. Quote, the women I knew took them in the middle of the night, Martin writes. When they woke up with their hearts pounding, panicking about schools or money or whether their husbands were faithful. Now that's, that's a cautionary tale. Because from, from the way uh, Wednesday Martin describes the women that she was around, it's just women that have it all on the outside. In fact, she described one time when a friend of hers was at a pickup in the, in the school line, and because of this line of black Cadillac Escalades and these women who look, look like models getting out and like taking photographs with children, they, like she, th- this friend thought it was some kind of celebrity school event. She realized, no, this is just drop-off. These are sort of the uber people. Whatever resources you need, and like what is the reality is tons of insecurity and felt weakness and fear. Now, you know, like th- this is an old point that if you're going to interact with the Bible, it just this, this comes up over and over and over. How many super beautiful people, how many super educated people, how many omnicompetent people do we have to see just flake out before we realize that strength does not come from the outside. It doesn't come from circumstances, and it doesn't even come from discipline and one's own self-empowerment. And we think we know that, and we don't know that. I mean, like, deep down, it's very American to think, I'm going to have a great education, or if I didn't have a great education, I'm going to build on whatever I had, and I'm going to read, and I'm going to read good books, and I'm going to read The Economist, and I'm going to look at the most emailed articles in The New York Times, and I'm going to eat organic food, and I'm going to hydrate, and I'm not going to text when I drive, except at stoplights. And I'm going to hold my hands at 10 and 2, and I'm going to have interesting friends, and I'm going to take care of myself, and I'm going to be strong, and and then not have strength. And it's just interesting to think about the fact that here it is at the end, really, I mean, going through Romans is like taking a long, amazing trip. That we've been on this long, amazing trip, and at the end of it, you've got Paul, who when he writes about himself, talks about that he's very weak. Talks about he's not a good speaker. (laughs) That he's not impressive in person. That his letters are better than when he shows up. He kind of hints that when he shows up in person, it's a letdown. But he says that there is a way to have real strength, not pretend strength and not posturing, but there is a way to have strength for how life actually is as a fallen, messed up person in a fallen, messed up world. So here's what I want to do. I want to just look briefly at how at the end he's recapping what all he's covered and then look at this doxology at the end. And just I'm going to be brief on this first part of uh, the recap. And he, he does it in a couple of ways. One is that the end of Romans is like a bookend of the beginning of Romans. Even in the terminology. And I, I put this in the bulletin. This column on the left, ah, uh, the people listening on the podcast, boy, they don't know what's going on right now. You know, it's just us looking at the bulletin. They'll never know what happened. Now, th- this column on the left is verses from the doxology. And then the column on the right 
are excerpts from just the first few verses of Romans. Now, look at the parallels. In our passage, he talks about my gospel. At the beginning, he talked about that he was set apart for the gospel of God. That's what I am. In our passage, he talks about the prophetic writings, the the beginning of the letter. He talks about God's prophets in the Holy Scriptures. In our passage, the obedience of faith, the exact same phrase at the beginning of the letter. And in the passage, he talks about all nations. And at the beginning of the letter, just a few verses in, he's talking about all the nations. It's just, it's a bookend. Every commentator I looked at pointed this out. Romans has bookends. He wants you to know that these are some of the main things. And you also get it through key terms. Just in the doxology, not even the whole passage that I read, what are the terms that Paul keeps using, that he's been using just the whole time in Romans? And really, it's all through his letters. God. Jesus. Gospel. That's just the biblical term for good news. Gospel. Faith. Not what you do, but faith. The nations. Eternity. Glory. This just keeps coming up over and over and over. About five years ago, there was a skit that Saturday Night Live started doing. It's just kind of been this recurring bit they've done over the last few years called... It's it's a pretend TV show called What's Up With That? And... um, As, as the bit goes, the, the, there's this host of the show uh, named DeAndre Cole. The character is DeAndre Cole. And he, he has guests on his show. There's always three people kind of sitting off to the side. He opens up the show singing, kind of introduces the show, and then he introduces his guests. Under, under the auspices that he's going to interview these guests and talk about current events and things going on in the world today. And one of the running gags, like kind of the main running gag, is that he never interviews the guests. And he always runs out of time and just has to end the show because he'll start off with the first... Like, one of the three guests is on the show every, every episode and has never spoken a word. But he'll start off with the first guest and he'll ask this open-ended question. And so when the person starts to speak, they'll just say some key word. Like they'll say, you know, DeAndre, uh, kids today in our world, they lack a solid foundation. And just as soon as he says foundation, you'll hear... And it's a song cue for him to just launch. I mean, so as, as he's saying he's going to interview this person, they'll just say some word and he'll get this look in his eyes and he'll just break out and just dance and sing. And then like, oh, we've run out of time. In some ways, as odd an analogy as this is, and I may get bad emails this week about this, Paul reminds me of DeAndre Cole. Or DeAndre Cole reminds me of Paul because... And I'm I'm not blowing smoke. I really think if you had been around him in person, if you said Jesus, if you said grace, um, if you said faith, he would launch. And, and, And that's because of who he is. It's not just the fact that he was called to be an apostle. He grew up in a rigorous, devout upbringing. He had tried about as hard as you can humanly try to, like, earn God's favor and to be able to go to bed at night and know that God's smile is on me through obedience and adherence to the commandments of God. And he knew he had no peace 
And then he met Christ. Didn't want to. He met the risen Christ. And he was reconciled to God. And he realized that Jesus was like his dreams come true. Jesus was the fulfillment of the Scriptures. And you cannot earn your way to God. You cannot obey your way to God. There is grace or there is judgment. And eternity is affected. When you, when you, Paul did not light up around the word parenting. Paul did not light up around politics. Paul lit up about God and Jesus and the gospel and faith and that it's for the nations and it affects eternity and it is glory. Now, that's a good segue into the doxology because when you do a doxology, you say glory to God. So let's pick up there and look at this doxology. Um, Let let me read the, the last verse, verse 27. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. What does that mean when a doxology says, to God be the glory? Uh, Think about it this way. In a sane universe, every human being would be a moon and would reflect back to God his light. You know, the, the moon is just a big round rock. It has no light that it emits of its own. But man, when it reflects light, when it reflects this light from another, from another source, the sun, it's like it's a light itself. If the world was the way it was supposed to be, human beings would all be full moons. And we would reflect back to God and to each other what He is like, what He said and what He's done, who He is. To glorify God is to be more moon-like. That's what it means. Like, may my life, may the world itself be the full moon that reflects back to you your own light. That's, that's doxology. In this one, and there's different doxologies all through the Bible. In this one, what is Paul glorifying God for? A couple of things. First off, that he's the strengthening God. Now, the younger you are, that probably won't be as big a deal. And the older you get, and uh, the more frail you get, and the more sad things you go through, that's going to become a bigger deal. That our God is the strengthening God. Uh, Here's how he puts it. Verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you. Um, One commentator that I've gone to a lot, and I've, I've quoted when I've given questions to community group leaders, John Stott great pastor, great um, writer, passed away a few years ago. He says this about the word for strengthening, the Greek word that Paul uses there. He says that it's, quote, almost a technical term for nurturing new converts and strengthening young churches. Now, understand what he's saying. Like, in English, there's not just one word for strengthen. You can say strengthen. You can say fortify. You can say galvanize. I mean, there'd be all these synonyms. There's not just one word. It's the same in Greek. There are other words he could have used there, but when, he looked, when John Stott looked at how this particular word is used in the New Testament, it's almost a technical term for giving to a new Christian what he or she needs to really grow. Like, what is the miracle grow you pour on a Christian individually, but then for young churches that are just starting out and they're uh, 
They're fragile. They're vulnerable. What do you pour on a young church to strengthen it? This term gets used. So according to Paul, what is the means by which God strengthens? What does he say? Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Now I want you to think about this. Um, I actually, just for my own, whatever, my own um, learning, got out a Greek concordance this week. This is a list of all the Greek words in the New Testament. And I looked up the verb that's the primary Greek verb for preach and looked at the ways it's used in the book of Acts and in Paul's letters and looked at what is the direct object. And you know what becomes crystal clear when you do that? Is that what the apostles preached, and in particular what Paul preached, was not Christianity. Now some of you just heard me like say something cuckoo and wacko. Paul did not preach a system. He preached a person over and over and over in the New Testament. It says that we preach Christ, not Christianity, not a worldview, not an approach to culture. We preach Jesus. We preach the kingdom of God. And I love that this is, he only does this twice in Romans, that he doesn't call it the gospel of God or the gospel of Jesus. He says, God is able to strengthen you according to my gospel. Right? It became very personal to him. It is the gospel of God, and it is the gospel of Jesus, but a believer is able to say, and it is mine. It's not about me, but it's for me. God is worthy of glory because he strengthens people when the gospel is proclaimed. Um, Some of you have had the experience of just limping into Sunday morning. And you are tired and you are frazzled and it can be everything from just discouragement to physical pain to I'm tired of children, to I'm tired of everything, to I don't even know if I believe this. I'm just weary. And what, what a friend of mine calls crispy. I'm just crispy. And you, you limp in on Sunday, and preachers experience this too. And you came, just kind of thinking, like, I will be there in body only. I'm not even sure why, but let's just, let's just get there. And not just through the singing, and not just through seeing each other, and not just through the table, although God uses all these things, but through the proclaiming of probably things you already know, you became stronger. I mean, I shared with you about a month ago, I heard a friend of mine preach on the resurrection. I've been a Christian for like over 30 years now. I've been ordained for almost 20 years. I'm I'm, I'm familiar with the resurrection. I'm not saying I'm an expert, but like, yes, I have heard that Jesus rose from the dead. And I'm sold on that and believe it and I've taught it and I've preached it. But just hearing him and being on the receiving end of it, I mean, I told Dana, I don't think that helped anybody in this room more than it helped me. Not new information. 
And when you've experienced that, here's what I want you to know. Do you know why that happened to you? This is very important to say. It's because God loves you. He loves you and He cares about you. I mean, the, the, the psalmist says, He remembers that we're dust. God, God does not fault us for being weak. He doesn't fault us for being fragile. And He doesn't fault us for feeling the effects that, man, it's hard to live in a messed up world. He does not fault us for that. And He cares about us. And so He loves us through something that is the only thing robust enough and strong enough that would let you know that He is love and there is a plan in this messed up world. And that is the good news. When you've experienced that, that's God loving you and loving me. And so Paul says, man, glory to God that he would do that and be that kind of God. And he's the wise God. He's the strengthening God and he's the wise God. Look in verse 27 again. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. And when you talk about God being wise, where do you start? That covers so much ground. But just look at a couple of things he says in the doxology that, sh- that demonstrates how, how wise God is. The first part, look in, verse, uh, look in verse 25 in the second part. He just mentioned the gospel preaching of Jesus Christ. And then he says, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. And this is something that Paul talks about in his letters, that there's a mystery. What is the mystery? The mystery is that the plan had always been, it just had not yet unfolded like a a flower. The plan had always been that the Messiah would come to save and redeem and rescue and cleanse not just ethnic Israel, but the nations of the world and the peoples of the world. Um, There is a man named Michael Ward, and he was doing doctoral research in England about C.S. Lewis. And he was working on um, something that C.S. Lewis wrote about the planets, and uh, this is kind of like this kind of epic poetry about the planets. And as he's working on this, uh, he just was going home back to back to his room. He was thinking about this part that he was working on. And you may or may not know this. Uh, a lot of you know this. Probably the most famous thing that C.S. Lewis ever wrote were children's stories. And it's a group of seven stories called the Chronicles of Narnia. There's seven, and there's been speculation over the years about why are there seven? Why not three? Why not ten? And people have thought, is it the seven deadly sins, or is it this, or is it that? And, and no one's ever quite been able to figure out what it was. Well, this, this Michael Ward is thinking about this work he's doing, and he remembers this phrase that's in the part about the planet Jupiter, Job. And the line says, uh, winter past and sins forgiven. I don't know if you've ever read or seen Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, but he thought... That sounds like the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. There's this horrible winter because of this wicked witch. And then the winter comes to an end when Aslan comes. And uh, and one of these boys from the earth, English boy named Edmund, his sins are forgiven. He thought, huh. And then he thought, Mars. Mars was the god of what? War 
and forests, the woods, which are dominant motifs in Prince Caspian. And he kind of went, huh. And it's like all of a sudden it opened up and the evidence is pretty compelling that he demonstrated that C.S. This is not a lecture, by the way, that you came to this morning. That C.S. Lewis based each of the seven chronicles of Narnia on a medieval understanding of the, the seven great celestial beings. Now, the information had always been there. And scholars had scrutinized it, but just at some point, it opened up. This is why Paul starts and ends Romans with something that we don't think about a lot. It's fascinating to him as someone who grew up as a devout Jew. The gospel that's not just for ethnic Jews and Israel, but is for all people everywhere. It's always been there in the Law and the Prophets. It was always there. And this wise God at this point in time let it explode on the world. And here, here's what he calls, the, in, in some sense, the, the explosion. He says in verse, uh, at the end of verse 26, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith, according to the command of the eternal God. Why did God send Jesus when God sent Jesus? You know what? We don't know. One of the church fathers named Chrysostom, he said this. Hey, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, when you start asking questions like that, you're being a busybody. He actually says that. You're being a busybody. Whether he's right or not, we don't know why God did it when he, when he did it. We know this. At that point in world history, it just so happened that there was the Pax Romana. Very few wars around the world. And it just so happens that there's this Roman road system which has revolutionized travel across national lines. And it just so happens that Koine Greek is like the English of the first century that almost everybody knows that language and can traffic in that language. And there's this factor, and there's this factor, and there's that factor. It just so happened that when Jesus came, all that was true. And by the command of God, wham! The good news is unleashed around the world according to God's wisdom. Now, Glory be to the strengthening God. Glory be to the only wise God. But you know, um, when we need that most, we may not like it. And I I, I was thinking, in fact, I I said this to Jake, I'm kind of sad to end Romans. You may not be sad, but I'm kind of sad to come to an end. I don't know when I'll preach through it again. I hope so, uh, down the road. But, you know, I started thinking about Another bookend of Romans is Paul starts and ends the book saying, I really want to come see you. I've never met you. I've just heard about you. I really want to come to Rome and meet you. People all over the world have heard about you. They've heard how you obey, but I want to meet you. Well, he did make it to Rome. If you read the book of Acts, it ends with Paul made it to Rome. And, uh, and this is not in Acts, but according to not only tradition, but some pretty reliable sources, Paul was beheaded in Rome. Under Nero's rule, Paul was beheaded. You know, uh, I, I saw a painting. I thought about putting it on Facebook because I've just I'd, I'd never seen it, and it, but it's so graphic. I, I I don't know. I'm not sure if I would do that or not. There's a painting done in the 1860s of uh, Paul's beheading, and it shows his decapitated body 
it's from the 1860s, kind of a classical style, tied to a Roman column and all these people looking at his head. It's awful. You look at that and you think, man, at that moment, does it seem like God is love? And about it doesn't look that way. But you think about like that is, that is made in some small way of the same DNA as the gospel that Paul preached. Because who has dominated this letter to the Romans? It's this person, and Paul talks about what does this mean? This person who was perfect. He was what a human being ought to be. And how does he end up? He ends up, here's what you see, a naked man post-Roman scourging, which was so awful that that was potentially fatal anyway, spiked to this horrible implement of torture and death, ultimately yelling out in a way that he never has in his adult life, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that look like God is love? And what Paul unpacks in Romans is even though this is so counterintuitive to what you're seeing, it's the ultimate demonstration of it. It's the ultimate demonstration that He loves you. It's the ultimate demonstration that He loves the messed up, fallen, sinful, real people. He loves you. And that that's how he changed everything. That demonstrates his holiness and it demonstrates his love and mercy. Um, There's a family, uh, I I won't give their name, it's a family that's known to several people in our church and their son right now has uh, just an inexplicable bundle of symptoms. And when I say inexplicable, just no one can understand what he has and he's just wasting away. Um... When, honestly, when I read the updates that his mom and dad send out, I can't breathe. But in an email that, that his dad sent out not long ago, I want you to hear what he said. I do believe that God loves our son even more than I do and that he's doing something far more profound than we could ever imagine. Paul, in Ephesians, gives glory to, quote, the one who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine, unquote. We hold fast to the hope that God is writing a story that will bring more glory to Himself than any of us can wrap our minds around. We choose to trust that God, in His infinite wisdom and glorious might, is telling a story in our son's life that will speak to this world someday of who He is and how deeply He loves His people. Uh, That makes me want to take my shoes off. That is so holy. When you get to that level of suffering, you have got to have something so big and strong and powerful and robust that you can still see that God is love. And what Paul has been saying the whole book of Romans is that thing exists. That thing changed the world. That thing is the life and the death and the resurrection of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
To God be the glory for the gospel. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, after all that we've heard, our, our great prayer right now is that for us as individual men and women, and for us as a community, for us as a church, downtown Presbyterian, would you work in our hearts and cause the eyes of our hearts, the eyes of our insides to see the good news more clearly, more compellingly, and experience it more than we ever have. Father, we, we pray that not only for ourselves, we, we pray it for the person who's even here this morning who maybe has kind of been around this, maybe had some exposure, but has not yet believed that the good news is not only true, but that it changes everything. Would you give her faith? Would you give him trust? And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.